few minutes, you'll hear the voice of the man who kidnapped Stephanie Slater. It's the voice of someone who may well have been involved in other major crimes, of course, including murder. He had the knife at my throat. He's over me. He's panting. And he just says, if you move again, I'll slit your throat. The ransom money was dropped near the village of Oxpring in the Barnsley area of Yorkshire. The kidnapper escaped with the money. This man had also committed a murder in the past. We potentially have got a situation where one Stephanie's life was in grave danger. He said, the only way your phone slides is when she's dead. If you ain't got her back in 24 hours, that's it. Hello all and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a podcast that covers the less familiar and often obscure crimes from the shores of the UK. I'm Paul, the host and creator of the show, and you guys are the enthusiasts out there that make doing a show such as this so worthwhile and rewarding to me. I love what I do and I hope that shows. Has everybody had a good week then? Enjoying the periodic sun that we've had? Beers and barbecues? We don't get it very often, so it's nice to make the most of it while we do have some nice weather anyway. I always feel very lucky whenever we've got great sunshine, because it's then that I'm mostly reminded of what a stunning area I'm lucky enough to live in. North Wales really does have some exceptionally beautiful parts to it. It has some areas that I like where they filmed Robocop, granted, but some stunning areas to counterbalance this too. Thanks to those concerned for the very kind new reviews of the show this week on both Facebook and iTunes, plus the Patreon support too. All are much appreciated and they really do make a difference. I'm really glad that people enjoy the show. As usual, there are a couple of promos to other shows coming up right now, and this week I'm pleased to feature Akshay Taylor's Birmingham-based Blood on the Rocks podcast and Cassandra Rehani at Of Myth and Mercy all the way over in Atlanta, Georgia. Links to both shows are with the show notes this week, and you can get each practically wherever you source your podcasts from. So take it away, please, both. Hello, and welcome to a promo for Blood on the Rocks, a podcast on all things creepy, morbid, or otherwise dark. I'm your host, Axel Taylor. Join me and various guest hosts as we cover a whole load of subjects. We'll show you the world of serial killers, accidents, hauntings, black metal, and more. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those other fancy podcast platforms. Our current funny content may vary. 
obscure cases, lesser-known crimes, horrific incidents hardly if ever covered before, uncovering and exposing all of these is the modus operandi of what every of Myth and Mercy podcast episode aims to do. My name is Cassandra, and I invite you to check us out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms. Check out our website at ofmythandmercy.com. Listen in and remember the question that Charles Bukowski asked. Mercy, I asked. Mercy, what does the human race know about mercy? Thanks very much there to Akshay and Cassandra. And as I say, guys, hope you all get to check them out. Fantastic. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast brings the concluding part of the One-Legged Train Spotter trilogy. And it's here that we meet the mind and the man behind Julie Dart's murder, the British Rail blackmail plot, and Stephanie Slater's kidnapping. If, of course, you haven't already met the guy because you've resisted having a bit of a search online, which I wouldn't blame you, because as I've said, I'd be doing the exact same thing myself. And I do gather from comments I've seen that some people already have uh, had a bit of a Google. So there's two points before we begin. Firstly, as indicated in the episode title, this is part three of a trilogy. And if you've missed either part one or two, then I advise you go back and listen to them first before listening into this one. Because this episode will refer to events focused upon in these episodes, and it won't make as much sense as it should do. And secondly, this episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the concluding part of the One-Legged Train Spotter trilogy, Endgame. The man who had killed Julie Dart kidnapped Stephanie Slater and had tried to blackmail British Rail finished typing and sat back to admire his handiwork. He believed that he'd brilliantly muddied the waters with the letter he'd just written. He believed it removed his culpability in the murder of Julie and the British Rail extortion plot, while still allowing his arrogant mind to take the credit for being the brains behind planning it all, as he saw it. After reading through it several times, he made a few alterations and then printed off several copies, taking care to not leave any fingerprints and sealing each envelope using a small brush and tap water to avoid leaving traces of his own DNA. The following morning, each letter was posted to their respective addressees. On Thursday the 6th of February, the following letter arrived across the deck of Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor complete with the now familiar spelling and grammatical errors, and incorrectly addressed yet again to Millgate. Now the text is quite lengthy, but it's important to replicate exactly as written. It read as follows. The facts. I, being the kidnapper of Stephanie Slater, am not the killer of Julie Dart. It is impossible that there can be any positive connection between the two cases. I am also not the person who idiotically tried to blackmail British Rail. The idea was a variation of an idea I had discussed with another. I now believe that he may have used my word processor to make his demands. The reason for the sudden cessation of communications between British Rail and the other was my intervention when I learned with horror that he was to use my ideas about picking up ransom monies. It could have been to my advantage to allow the police to continue to believe that the cases are all connected, but my concerns are for Stephanie and her parents and how they must be feeling after reading the reports. I promised and gave my word to Stephanie on a few things, and with only one exception I kept them. Some of the promises were A. I had not killed before B. 
provided she did not remove her blindfold, she would be released and not be harmed in any way, both at that time or any time in the future. At that time, it was not envisaged that anything could go wrong with the plan. All safeguards were in triplicate. The only time I ever broke my promise to Stephanie was on the Wednesday she was released. In the morning, I knew she was getting very nervous about me not returning, so I gave her my word that I would be back by 9.30pm at the latest and she would be home by midnight. But a slight delay, probably deliberately caused by the police, meant I was back to Stephanie's hide at 10.30pm. I informed her that everything was okay and she was now going home. It was the first time I had seen her cry. She virtually collapsed in my arms with relief. Fortunately, she had her blindfold on and could not see my tears for her streaming down my face. Dropping Stephanie off near her home was not part of any game. It never entered my head that police surveillance would extend beyond the fence of her parents' house. Initially it was discussed with Stephanie about dropping her off at Utoxeter police station, but this was abandoned as I was worried that they would delay her return to her parents. The second option was Utoxeter hospital, where I knew doctors would have kept her away from police for a while, but this again delayed her return to her parents. It was this reason, and only this reason, that I decided to risk dropping her off a minute or so from her house. It was not any bravado on my part, I was terrified. Not about the car being spotted, but I knew the police could win any ensuing chase. No blame can be attached to the West Midlands police for any of their actions. They did not know which direction they were heading, let alone into South Yorkshire territory. They did not know or could not have known where the money was to have been dropped until at least 30 seconds after it had been. They were not expecting her release until Friday. There was no way they could have made an arrest that evening, unless by accident... I had been stopped and searched for any traffic offence or accident, for in my pocket and car were letters informing the finder the whereabouts of Stephanie. I did not want Stephanie starving to death had anything happened to me, for her location could have remained a secret for weeks. The fact that I knew, could and did carry out the crime extremely successfully is my only satisfaction. I am ashamed, upset and thoroughly disgusted at my treatment of Stephanie and the suffering I must have caused to her parents. Stephanie will most likely insist she was well looked after, but during the time we talked and I tried to make her laugh and smile, the sudden change of her smiling face to one taut and terrified was heartbreaking and I knew I was doing that to her. Even now my eyes are filled with tears. I wake up during the night actually crying. With a little look, Stephanie will get over it shortly. Myself, I do not think I ever will. Sorry, Stephanie. Sorry, Mr and Mrs Slater. Before I destroy this last bit of forensic evidence, this word processor, I shall put onto paper a full and detailed account of everything from June 1991 to date. This will be given free of charge to any paper or periodical who thinks that Stephanie's exclusive story could be of use to them. This, in my own little way, seems to be the only way I can hope to offer any repayment for what I did to her. This case will never come to court, as I have contingency plans. Should the police be two steps behind me, Mr Melvin Measure, solicitor, will be given these details. He will also have details of how to contact me. Copies of this letter went to both West Yorkshire and West Midlands Police, Melvin Measure solicitors, the News of the World and the Sun newspapers, Shipways, 
and even callously, Lind Art. Strangely, Stephanie or Mr. and Mrs. Slater did not get a copy of it, though. What the writer didn't realise was that he unwittingly, rather than extricate himself from involvement in the crimes that he saw as failures, he actually provided confirmation undoubtedly that all three inquiries could be linked. When I read this letter first off, I was struck by more than anything by the arrogance of it. The overall tone of it seems to alternate between the author gloating and showing off, wanting credit and acknowledgement for his brilliant plan, claiming that the plots were his brainchild but carried out by someone else using his word processor, and then self-pity, painting himself as affected perhaps even more than Stephanie. Yet he failed to realise that the more correspondence police had from him, the more they'd come to recognise the handiwork of the same man each time. He had the spelling mistakes, similar phrases and sentences used, the tone of writing, and the similar type of detailed instructions were all common throughout each letter. He denied all responsibility for Julie's murder, but of course, by addressing this letter to Millgate instead of Milgarth, he was again providing a link to Julie's murder without realising. Psychologist Paul Britton, who read the letter as soon as it was received by police, told them that any contrition in it was feigned and that the author felt threatened. The release of the artist's impressions had really shaken him and he feared that he could now be identified. And he had very good reason to fear this because he would soon be identified. Thanks to what I hear you ask? Well, good old Crime Watch UK, of course. Stupid bloody BBC. It's arguably Crime Watch's finest result and biggest success. The man who by now had become Britain's most wanted was going to be featured as the quarry in the lead appeal on the edition of Crime Watch UK following Stephanie's release, which was scheduled to air on February 20th, 1992. That was my 14th birthday, as a matter of fact. Julie's murder had already been appealed on the show some months before. And now that it had been linked to Stephanie's kidnapping, plus the failed British Rail blackmail, Operation Kaftan was the biggest story in the country at the time, and there was no way that it wouldn't be featured on the show from the start. To this extent, from early after Stephanie's release, the police and BBC had been working on a considered appeal to put out on the show. This included a profile of the kidnapper from what was known about him, details of his car, the artist's impressions of the kidnapper and the train motif badge, and in what would be exclusively released on the Crime Watch broadcast, a tape recording of the kidnapper's voice. It was widely reported in the media in the days leading up to the programme that Crime Watch would be featuring the voice of the kidnapper of Stephanie Slater. The other points of appeal had already been saturated in the media, the artist's impressions, the car details, the train motif badge, and now it was hoped that all these together, plus the so-called Golden Triangle connection, the area in which the kidnapper operated, and his voice, appealed to as wide an audience as possible, would lead to his identification and arrest. Somebody had to know this guy. The day before Crime Watch UK was to air, about 3.15pm the telephone rang at Chipway's office in Great Bar, and was answered by Jane Cashman. The conversation went as follows. Jane. Good afternoon. Shipways, Great Bar. Caller. Can I speak to Sylvia? Jane. Who's calling? Caller. It's a friend of hers. Now Jane Cashman realised instinctively who was on the end of the phone and said to Sylvia, it's him. Sylvia then picked up her phone to listen in. 
and the conversation continued. Caller, I just want to speak to you for five minutes and then I won't speak to you again. I'm the man that kidnapped Stephanie. You and her are the only people who can identify me and Stephanie won't because she knows what will happen. Do you understand? If I'm not caught, I've got enough money to look after you. I know where you live and I know about your family. Do you understand? The caller then rang off. Understandably, this shook and upset Sylvia, who took this as the threat that it was and burst into tears. The call was immediately traced to a call box in a small village called Great Gonaby, just off the A1 in Lincolnshire, and police were dispatched to the scene, arriving within minutes, but they'd missed him again. Why exactly the kidnapper had decided to risk leaving a further impression of his voice by calling shipways wasn't clear. It can only come down to the fact that he indeed felt threatened, perhaps because it had dawned upon him that there was a very real chance someone would hear his voice, maybe put it together with every other item of appeal, and identify him. By trying to intimidate witnesses he believed definitely would know his real voice, namely Shipway's staff who had seen him, spoken to him in person. He was attempting to cover his tracks, yet what could they say? That's him. It still wouldn't identify him. For all of the other telephone conversations he'd made throughout the kidnapping, he'd taken great care to disguise his voice by placing a clothes peg on his nose, a simple but effective solution. However, maybe because of all the other plans and preparation that he had to do that day, on the day of the ransom drop, he'd forgotten to do this simple act when he'd contacted Shipways to ask Kevin Watts if he'd got the money. It was to prove a very, very costly oversight, because police had the killer's actual voice on tape. Hello? Have you got the money? Who's this, please? Never mind. Have you got the money? For tomorrow? For tomorrow? Yeah. Have you got it? February the 20th, the night of the Crime Watch UK programme. Rehearsals for the show that afternoon had gone well. The points of appeal police were making were clear and precise, and it had been agreed that any names that callers gave of a suspect would be prioritised on how many of the points of appeal the suspect corresponded with, plus if they were found within the Golden Triangle area. Fifty telephone lines with an 0800 number were on standby, each specially fitted with tape recording facilities in case the killer rang in and the show went out at 9.30pm that evening. I would have undoubtedly watched it myself, because I never used to miss it, when it was still on of course, and although I know this case very very well, I don't particularly remember the appeal being on Crime Watch. One other person who never missed Crime Watch UK was 48-year-old Susan Oak from Riddlesden near Keithley in West Yorkshire, and if she was out when the programme was ever on, she would set the timer on the video for it, Set in the video, proper yesteryear or what, eh? Not even Video Plus. Do you remember that unforgiving monstrosity? How many programmes did you not see the end of because they overran and Video Plus just cut them off rigid like that? Terrible. That evening, Susan had been out for the evening and had only got in at 10.30pm and had immediately settled down to watch Crime Watch that she'd recorded fresh as soon as it had finished. Throughout the previous week, her mind had wandered constantly to the appeal points about the kidnapper of Stephanie Slater that had been so widespread in the press, because it crossed her mind more than once that the wanted man could be her ex-husband. They looked strikingly the same, 
Her ex-husband was a massive train and railway buff. They had the same type and colour of car and she knew he now lived in Sutton-on-Trent which was slap bang in the middle of the Golden Triangle. In fact, the only thing that dismissed suspicions from her mind about him was the fact that her ex-husband only had one leg. Such an obvious and apparent disability, she reasoned, would have been noted and there had been no mention of the kidnapper having any such disability or even a limp. No, she reasoned, she must be mistaken. So the lead item on the programme was, of course, as said, the hunt for Britain's most wanted man. And as she watched, and the points of appeal were introduced individually by Assistant Chief Constable Tom Cook, Susan became more and more uneasy and uncomfortable. The kind of feeling you get when a shocking realisation sinks in, hearing and seeing it all again at once on screen. But it was when Susan heard the voice for the first time, the first time that the voice of the kidnapper of Stephanie Slater and the killer of Judy Dart had been played to the public, that she was finally sure. The voice on the tape was unmistakably that of her ex-husband. She was later to tell detectives, I was entirely convinced that it was his voice. There was no doubt in my mind. Hearing it had such an effect on me that I became traumatised and suffered shock. Both of Susan's sons then telephoned her, saying the same thing and confirming what she already knew in her heart to be true. They'd recognised their father as well. Shaken and highly distressed, she tried the crime watch number, but all lines were busy, so she rang a local police station in Keithley, who in turn put her through to the Julie Dart incident room at Milgarth. Detective Constable Wayne Greenwood received the call from Susan Oak at 11.15pm that evening in which she told her tale and named her ex-husbands as being the voice on the tape. She was that adamant and sincere about it, that after being told about the suspect, Bob Taylor instructed two detective constables to call on Susan at home. Just 55 minutes after she'd rang, police were knocking on her front door, ready to learn more about her ex-husband. Susan's ex-husband was called Michael Benniman Sams. She was very upset by the time detectives arrived, but went on to explain the links that had convinced her and her two sons that the man who was a killer, kidnapper and blackmailer was Michael Sams. She explained to them that her former husband Mike, as she called him, ran a tool repair business in Newark, Nottinghamshire, and that he was now married to a woman called Tina. Not only were the artist's impressions strikingly like him, but the voice on the tape unquestionably was his. He had the exact same type of car depicted in the appeal. Susan could confirm this because she'd seen her ex-husband and his car just a few days before at his stepfather's funeral and he was an obsessive train enthusiast and train spotter. She also confirmed that Sam's had a criminal record and he'd spent time in prison for dishonesty in 1978. So a clearer picture of a suspect matching the criteria couldn't have been painted. Yet she couldn't understand why no one had mentioned the clear limp that he had due to him having a false leg. And she went on to explain that Sam's right leg had been amputated below the knee back in 1978 due to him having cancer. Detectives took down all the information Susan had to offer and then went to run a check on Michael Sam's. Bob Taylor was so enthused about Sam's as a suspect when he learned of the past few hours' developments early that Friday morning 
that Sams was elevated to number one suspect as far as West Yorkshire police were concerned. A check with West Midlands police revealed that they too had been given Sam's name in the Crime Watch studio because of his own son Charles telephoning in and naming his father as the kidnapper. West Midlands police, however, had given Sam's a much lower priority as a suspect due to him having a false leg. It was decided that a team of four officers from West Yorkshire Police would make the journey down to Sam's cottage in Newark, and so early that morning they set off. At 10.40am on Friday the 21st of February 1992, the team arrived at the Sam's home, which was Eve's cottage on Barrel Hill Road in Sutton-on-Trent, and they were granted access to the property by Sam's wife Tina. From the initial entry to the cottage, looking around, each officer was struck with the evidence of a deep-seated interest in trains and railways. There was memorabilia everywhere. The walls were adorned with engine number and name plates, railway memorabilia and station signs. In the utility room of the cottage, a large Paddington station sign was fixed to the wall above a desk with a word processor on it, leaning against which was what was at the time an insignificant Suzuki love moped. An Alsatian dog roamed through the premises also. Detectives asked Tina where Michael Sams was, and she explained that he would be at his workshop, T&M Tools, in the nearby town of Newark-upon-Trent. As they left to get back into the car, Tina Sams shouted after them, He's probably expecting you. He said last night that you might be wanting to talk to him about his metro. He'll be home at five o'clock. The detectives told her that they'd be back to see him at 5pm, but instead, so as to not alert Sams and give him time to possibly remove evidence or flee, they went immediately to his workshop at the Swan and Salmon Yard in Newark. After some searching, they found it after about 20 minutes, and immediately their excitement began to rise. Remember, this was already number one suspect as far as West Yorkshire police were concerned, and armed with what they'd already learned less than 12 hours before from Susan Oak, they now began to think back to Stephanie's debriefing and the details that she'd recalled, despite being blindfolded. The approach to the workshop was on a downward slope, exactly like Stephanie had described. Parked outside, detectives noted an Austin Metro car, registration number VWG, 386Y. And guess what colour? Vermilion red. This is before they even entered the workshop. When they did enter, they went through a very heavy sliding wooden door on metal runners and were confronted with a further door on which a sign hung that said, Closed on Wednesdays. This door led into a sales and storage area on which there was a counter with a cash machine, an old-fashioned telephone and shelving behind that contained all sorts of tools, rope, fixtures and fittings, a microwave oven and a battered radio which was playing music. When they had opened the second door, a shop doorbell had sounded like an old-fashioned cash register ring had sounded. It wasn't imaginary because one of the detectives tried it a number of times and each time the same sound occurred. Detective Sergeant Tim Grogan called out, and from the rear of the premises, a middle-aged, stockily-built man limped into view. It was Michael Sams, who told the detectives that he had been expecting them, and that his wife had just telephoned. He then asked the detectives what they wanted. 
Detective Sergeant Grogan told him that they were making inquiries into the murder of Julianne Dart, and as he spoke to Sams, he was taking in more and more of the premises, and Sams himself. He noted remnants of a green wheelie bin in a corner of the filthy workshop, and a wooden beam running the width of the property, more evidence that had corroborated Stephanie's story. He noted the workmanlike fingers that Stephanie had described, and the hairs on the backs of his hands, the striking match to the artist's impression that Sam's bore, and the uncanny match to the voice that each detective had heard so often by then. When Sam's was asked about which radio station it was that was playing, he answered, Radio 2, I have it on all day. This was more than enough for detectives. They were now absolutely convinced that they had their man. Sam's was told he was being arrested on suspicion of the murder of Julie Dart and was cautioned. His response was, You've got the wrong man. You're making a big mistake. Sam's was taken to Newark Police Station, to which he actually showed detectives the way there himself, and when they arrived, Detective Sergeant Grogan identified himself to the custody officer and explained that Sam's had been arrested on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. Sams's rights were read to him again and he gave his name, address and date of birth for the custody record. He then asked that his wife be informed of his arrest and the duty solicitor was contacted to attend Newark Police Station. Sams was then escorted to the custody suite and just mere moments after being placed in there, his first time in a cell in almost 14 years, said the following to a supervising police officer. The evidence is in the workshop. I didn't do the murder. I don't know how they linked the two. I kidnapped Stephanie Slater, but I did not murder Julie Dart. You'll find £19,000 at the workshop with my confession. By nine o'clock that evening, Assistant Chief Constable Tom Cook appeared on Newark Police Station steps to read the following short statement. At 11.25 today, a 50-year-old man was arrested in Newark, Nottingham, and is being held in connection with the kidnapping of Stephanie Slater. He was arrested by detectives investigating information received in telephone calls to police following the Crime Watch appeal. The man will later be transferred to the West Midlands Police Area. He is expected to be charged in the near future. The game was up, and Stephanie's kidnapper was in custody. But who was Michael Sams, and why had he done this? Michael Benjamin Sams had been born in Keithley in West Yorkshire on the 11th of August 1941, the first son of Iris and Ernest Edward Benjamin Sams. The marriage wasn't destined to last, however, and it ended in divorce in 1949. Sams's mother remarried after this, and young Michael came to refer to his stepfather Sidney Walker as Dad, although he did not take his surname. Michael was quite good at school and showed a penchant for music gaining several merits and certificates for this. If it wasn't schooling or music, it was train spotting and model trains in his spare time, interests in which he developed and held a lifelong interest and enthusiasm for. But his equally keen interest was for sport and athletics, a game which he was naturally gifted for, and which he was to take part in seriously and competitively for many years. He was to leave Keithley Technical School with O-level grades in chemistry, maths and technical drawing, later gaining further grades in additional maths and physics. 
From here, he entered Kingston-upon-Hull Nautical College, where he was to gain further O-levels in mechanics, seamanship and navigation, and this led to Sam's joining the Merchant Navy at age 19. For the next three years, Sam's travelled extensively all over the Mediterranean ports, as well as serving in Pakistan, India and parts of Africa. It seemed that the young man was a natural at whatever he set out to do, and he could apply himself and worked hard and he undoubtedly could have had a very successful career had he remained in the Merchant Navy. But these things are never for all people, and disillusionment can set in, opinions can change. For Sam's, he became homesick. He desperately missed Yorkshire, and he longed to be back home, so he resigned and decided to return home to try something else. Back home, he had a brief spell working in a cotton mill before he was taken on at a large, locally established employer, Keithley Lifts. Sam soon took to his role here, and shortly afterwards was working across the country and abroad installing lift equipment. It was whilst installing equipment at the cotton mill where he had formerly worked that he met 19-year-old Susan Little. Before long, they were a couple and became engaged on Susan's 19th birthday, before marrying on the 18th of July 1964. The arrival of son Robert in 1968 and the second son Charles in 1970 to the couple, forced Sams to decide that he would have to become self-employed, and he formed Axiom Heating Limited with a former colleague of his, Keith Glennon. Due to Sams's hard work and technical knowledge, the business was a success. It was such a success that nine months later a subsidiary company, Axiom Insulation Limited, was formed by the partners, and was again another success. For a few years, the Sams family were happy and prosperous. His interest in athletics continued over these years, and he was for a time classed amongst Britain's top runners, being a member of the Bingley Harriers and competing at least three times in the annual Three Peaks race. But by 1974, things began to change, and it can be pinpointed to Sams falling ill with what was at the time suspected meningitis. Extensive tests were carried out upon him, but the exact cause of the mystery illness remained exactly that, and could only be ascribed to some form of viral infection. Outwardly he appeared to make a full physical recovery, but something inside him had changed. For reasons unclear, a month after getting out of hospital, Sams announced that he was selling his shares in both Axiom companies to try a new venture. Both his wife and business partner argued against this and tried to talk him around but Sam's couldn't be swayed. But Sam's new business venture wasn't a success, and his attitude towards his wife and children began to change as well, and by 1976, the couple's relationship had deteriorated to the point where they agreed on a trial separation. Susan and the boys moved out of the marital home, and were to never again live with Sam's, Susan instead buying a house in nearby Riddlesden. According to medical notes from the time, Sams was treated for depression in 1976 and he suffered from frequent and acute headaches afterwards. His mood and personality could now change at the drop of a hat. By 1977, in what was a complete fall from grace, Sams had begun to associate with petty criminals and in November that year was arrested along with three others and charged with criminal deception involving a fraudulent motor insurance claim. When the case came to trial in April 1978, 
he and his co-defendants were sentenced to six months imprisonment each. Within a few days of being imprisoned, Sams began to develop crippling pains and swelling in his right leg, and despite mild painkillers and antibiotics prescribed by a prison doctor, neither went away. He spent his prison sentence brooding about how his life had worked out and becoming more and more bitter at society, and one time writing down a bitter personal profit and loss account that ended with the words, By the time my release comes in October, I should be a very bitter person. And then in bold capital letters, Society owes me and I will be repaid. Shortly after his release in October 1978, the cause of the extreme pain in his leg was revealed. Sams was diagnosed with cancer, and as a result, his right leg below the knee had to be amputated. This was a bitter blow for the former athlete, and it magnified the bitterness that he felt towards society. In his eyes, from now on, he was a victim. Shortly after this, he was divorced from Susan, and just a few months later, back now living in Leeds, he'd married a woman called Jane Marks that he'd met through a Lonely Hearts column. This marriage lasted just mere months, with Sam's moving in with her, unemployed and hobbling about on crutches, whilst he was waiting for a prosthetic limb to be fitted. Furious rows soon began, and when he resorted to threatening Jane's life rather than have her leave him, that was enough for her. She fled from her own home, coming back a few days later for as many possessions as she could grab, and then left for good. The couple were divorced shortly afterwards, and Jane was never to see or speak to her husband again. By 1980, Sams was working again, this time for Black & Decker as a workshop repairman, and in early 1982 he moved down to work in the company's Birmingham workshop. It was shortly after this that he met the woman who had become wife number three, Tina Aston. Tina was already twice married with a teenage son when she placed a Lonely Hearts advert in the Birmingham Evening Mail and met Michael Sams as a result of this. They got on well, became a couple, and 18 months later were living together and were engaged. Again, rows started to set in after this, sometimes over the most trivial of matters, but most frequently over Black and Decker, who were making Sams work all hours and pressuring him to move to a different workshop, this time in Coventry. He was to refuse this and instead accept voluntary redundancy from Black and Decker, and in September 1985 he was paid off with a sum of £3,600. He used this money to move away, this time to Peterborough in Cambridgeshire, and to start a business of his own again, Peterborough Power Tools. Peterborough Power Tools was not a success however, and soon folded with Sam's owing monies to several angry suppliers and himself in mortgage arrears and serious financial trouble. On the back of yet again self-destructive action, Sam's took it out on his partner Tina. He became more violent and abusive towards her, yet the couple stayed together. You never understand why people do that. In 1988, Tina's son from a previous marriage, Paul, died of a brain tumour, and devastated, she retreated into herself, begging to leave Peterborough because it held such tragic memories for her. After carefully considering this, in the end Sam's agreed, and after he and Tina married in November 1988, after six years together, he promised they would go house hunting. To Sam's, it was less of a fresh start and a sacrifice for the woman he loved, 
more so a way to avoid paying the massive list of irate creditors that he owed money to. He could simply disappear, end of problems. He reasoned that he could start yet another business and find some new premises close to where the couple had found their new home in the Nottinghamshire town of Sutton-upon-Trent. Just a ten-minute drive away from Eve's cottage was the market town of Newark-on-Trent, and it was here that Sam's found a perfect workshop, an empty premises in the Swan and Salmon Yard, which backs onto the River Trent, and coincidentally, just a hundred yards away from part of Newark Castle, known as Millgate. It was from here that he started yet another business called T&M Tools, which he would run right up until his arrest. But it seemed that Sam's had thrown away the one successful business venture he'd ever had many years before, because old story, T&M Tools wasn't the lucrative venture he had believed it would be. At first, Tina managed T&M Tools and did the paperwork side of it, which Sam's was shocking at doing, because he was, after all, dyslexic. She covered that side of the business and tidied up the place, while Sam's installed a counter and storage area at the front, and workshop area at the rear of the sizeable premises. Whilst over the next few years it did trade, it was in nowhere near the same volume that Axiom Heating had done, it more just ticked over, and as a result, the cash flow problems soon resurfaced. Sam's was unwilling to curb his lavish spending on his obsessions, model trains and train spotting, and by 1990, Sam's found himself spiralling further and further into debt. He found a way to some extent around this. He fraudulently signed on as unemployed due to his disability, and he began receiving state benefits of £115.61 a week, as well as having the mortgage on his house paid for by the social. He of course made no mention of his running a business, and apparently this was not checked, or he'd managed to play down the extent to which he was involved with it. By this time his day-to-day mood had much worsened, and this led to further rows at home, where Sam's had even taken to not speaking to Tina for days on end, completely going off doing his own thing, having a separate life and working all hours, and instead, when he was home, leaving sarcastic notes around the house for her, such as fill up the kettle and ordering a spare bedroom tonight. He would even leave notes pointing to dust directed at Tina, saying, couldn't be bothered. That must have been a right existence, mustn't it, that? Finally, at her wit's end, she'd ceased working at T&M Tools completely, and the business began to decline further, while the debts began to rise. A familiar scenario for Sam's. By the beginning of 1991, Sam's had begun to give serious consideration to unlawful solutions to his cash flow problems, and he hit upon the thought of kidnapping a young woman and holding her to ransom, which he believed police would pay. This, he believed, would solve his money problems for good, and arrogantly, he believed that he could do this successfully, as though he was some sort of master criminal. He hated society so much that he decided to exact his revenge upon it now, echoing the footnote of his angry prison letter, and he had decided that he would now indeed be repaid. He sat down and put his devious, methodical mind to work on what he believed would be a foolproof plot, and by the beginning of July 1991, he was ready with the scheme. He would kidnap a sex worker, hold a hostage in his workshop, and collect £145,000 in ransom. He would take the woman from the red light district of Leeds, which he was familiar with, 
and upon receipt of the money, he would kill the woman and then dump the body. There was no way he would risk being identified, so one evening he had gone out and kidnapped Julie Dart. And now he was under arrest and had been identified. Everybody who knew Sams was in deep shock when he was arrested, and more so when they heard that he had admitted to kidnapping Stephanie Slater. His wife Tina was especially in a state of deep shock. She had no idea of his involvement in any such things, and despite their marriage being less than idyllic, with their separate lives and post-it notes on the kettle for God's sake, she found it hard to believe that she'd been sharing a bed with a killer. She just couldn't get her head round the idea, and had even watched Crime Watch the night before with her husband, sat on the sofa holding his hand in one of their increasingly rare moments of affection. She'd seen all the clues pointing to her husband, yet had still not given the slightest thought that he could be Britain's most wanted man. She'd never had any suspicions about him whatsoever. He'd even said to her, when watching the Crime Watch appeal, that could almost be me, couldn't it? And she'd simply replied, Good job you've got a tin leg then, isn't it? Sams had not showed a flicker of emotion or panic while watching the programme, and afterwards he'd taken the dog for a walk, commented on his way out of the door that police would probably be calling to see him at some point in the near future because of his metro. When he was initially questioned on the day he was arrested, Sams began by admitting to kidnapping Stephanie, but was to deny killing Julie Dart completely. In what was to become a common and recurring theme throughout his many police interviews, Sams would mix truth and fabrication when it suited him. He would deny something until confronted with a point that evidence proved beyond doubt he couldn't deny, then he would confess to it at a later stage when he had had time to think of an answer that suited him. In his first interview, he outlined how he had abducted Stephanie and then told the story of her week in captivity the events that were described in the previous episode. He was then asked about the choice of location for the ransom drop, and he said that he'd stumbled across the Dove Valley Trail the previous year whilst out walking his dog, despite it being a considerable distance from where he lived, and nothing of course to do with it being familiar to a railway enthusiast. He then told how he had parked his metro on the evening of the drop some six miles away at the end of the Dove Valley Trail, then he'd taken his moped out of the vehicle and had used it to get cross-country along the trail to the disused railway bridge that Kevin Watts had left the ransom money on. He'd been waiting below at the end of the rope, had pulled the money down when it had been left, and he'd then been away instantly over the abandoned trail using his moped. In a short time, he was back at the car and away. Sams took a great pride in being the centre of attention. He enjoyed the game and he revelled in everyone knowing that it was his brilliant plan, that he had thought it out and that he was the one successful in obtaining the money. He didn't stop to think that this success had amounted to him being caught just over three weeks later and that he hadn't been able to spend a single penny of the ransom money. And whilst he would admit, somewhat played down, that he had abducted Stephanie and had gotten away with the money, there were two things he wouldn't say. He wouldn't admit to the murder of Julie Dart, and he would not reveal where the money was hidden. It was when pressed on this point that Sams was to come out with another story, that he had had an accomplice, and that this man had killed Julie Dart. This claim shows the devious and arrogant mind of Michael Sams. When asked if he had an accomplice, he replied, No, 
I had nobody helping me whatsoever. The only thing is, somebody else knew what I was doing, yeah, but he had no involvement with it whatsoever. By admitting this, he was still taking credit for his brilliant plan, but distancing himself from the murder. Sams would say no more on this at that time, and that evening was taken to Birmingham's Belgrave Road police station. Meanwhile, from the moment he'd been arrested, teams of search officers and senior crime specialists were methodically taking apart Sams's workshop and Eve's cottage, looking for evidence to connect him with the crimes. His word processor was seized, his moped and car were taken for forensic examination, and the house and workshop were both practically dismantled in a detailed and thorough search that was to produce plenty of evidence to link Sams to the kidnapping. Both locations were documented in detail and photographed thoroughly at each stage, and £19,000 of the ransom money had been found in a red metal toolbox on a shelf in Sams's workshop, but of the remainder there was no sign. Over the next two days, Sams was interviewed on a number of occasions by detectives from both West Midlands and West Yorkshire Police, and whilst he again admitted kidnapping Stephanie, he continued to deny killing Julie Dart. Instead, he went on to claim that this other man, his accomplice, had killed Julie, and when the linking factors between her murder and the blackmail plot against British Rail were put to him, he agreed with detectives that this man had committed both. He also claimed that the other man had the remainder of the money, and in an attempt to deflect any forensic evidence that may be found from searches at his home or work, Sams went on to say that this man had had access to his workshop keys for a month, conveniently over the period that Julie Dart was abducted and murdered. He then claimed, It was the other man who wanted to kill Stephanie and killed Julie Dart because she did not follow his instructions. Even if Stephanie had seen where she was, I would have released her unharmed. In a previous letter to police, Julie's killer had claimed that she had died because she'd seen where she was. On the evening of Sunday the 23rd of February, Sams was charged with the abduction of Stephanie Slater, her unlawful imprisonment and demanding money with menaces, and the following morning appeared in court to be remanded in custody. He was then remanded to Leeds in order for questioning concerning the murder of Julie Dart to continue. When on the way to Leeds, Sams made an unwitting yet important statement saying, I will be okay at Millgate, won't I? When referring to Millgarth. When he arrived there, he was asked if he knew where he was and he replied, Yes, Millgate. Over the next few days, Sams was again interviewed at length by detectives and adopted the same confirm and deny strategy. Whenever he was confronted with a piece of evidence that he couldn't explain away, he would conveniently blame the other man. He accepted that Julie's murder and the British Rail blackmail plot were connected, but were the work of this man, and when Sams was hit with a bombshell that forensic evidence matching fibres found on the sheet that Julie's body had been wrapped in matched that of carpet found in his workshop, and he was presented with evidence that experts had managed to retrieve from his word processor, he fumbled claiming that this man had had access to it. He had already used this man to try to distance himself from forensic evidence found proving Julie had been in his workshop by saying that he'd had his keys, claiming he was elsewhere on the day of her murder. Yet every time he was pressed to identify this man, Sams refused. 
Using painstaking work, police could shoot down every explanation Sams was to give to Alibi himself for the time of the murder of Julie Dart. Even his alibi of being off train spotting on the day of the murder by using engine logs obtained from British Rail to prove that photographs Sams claimed had been taken on that day and so proved his alibi were impossible to have been because the engines in the photographs were not in the place on the date or time. The evidence retrieved from his word processor was a virtual gold mine. There were lists of telephone numbers corresponding to the locations mentioned in the British Rail blackmail plot. There were drafts of ransom letters. There were plans and lists and a confession of sorts that referred to a Julie D. Sams had simply pressed delete when he was trying to cover his tracks and thought that the files had been erased forever. School by error that, because forensic computer experts can do absolute wonders, can't they, even back then? His response, under the pressure of all this mounting evidence, was to blame everything on the other man, who he refused to name because, he claimed, he was protecting Stephanie or anyone else from retribution by this man. Police were having absolutely none of this, and with ample evidence to do so, at 9.20pm on Wednesday the 26th of February 1992, they charged Michael Sams with the murder, kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment of Julie Dart. But what of the remainder of the money? Sams had claimed in interviews that he and the other man had buried it in separate locations between them and that only the both of them together could find the entire amount as it had been separated and repackaged. Again came a brilliant piece of deduction by the police as well as a generous helping of luck. They reasoned that Sams would have buried the money somewhere with great significance to him and that he would be very familiar with, yet somewhere where it could not obviously be discovered, not in his back garden or anything. Working off the theory that it would be somewhere connected with his obsessions, trains or railways, it was noted that just 1.7 miles from where Julie's body was left was one of Sams's favourite train spotting venues, Stoke Summit. This was the scene in 1938, that the Mallard steam train reached a then world record 126 miles per hour, and so it was a bit of a hallowed sight for train buffs. A retired SAS colonel was brought in, an expert who was well experienced in finding terrorist arms caches in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and with West Yorkshire Police, he went over the entire area of Stoke Summit. He agreed that the selection of this site to have hidden the money was sound reasoning, and he identified a list of 68 different landmarks and points of interest in the vicinity that he believed worth looking at that may be used as a marker for someone having buried something. In December 1992, teams of West Yorkshire police were out searching and digging at Stoke Summit, and on the second day of the hunt, struck something buried a few inches down in the corner of a field there. Inspection showed that it was a black plastic seed tray, packed with polythene, containing £60,000 of the ransom money. The remainder of the ransom money, minus £5,000 that Sams had accidentally dropped when he was making his getaway on the night of the ransom drop, was found buried in an ice cream container about a 100 yards away a few days later. This effectively left Sams's claim of the other man dead in the water, for if he was real, then surely he would have returned for the money that he'd hidden. Michael Benjamin Sams came to trial at Nottingham Crown Court on the 9th of June 1993. 
where he pleaded guilty to kidnapping Stephanie Slater and guilty to blackmailing shipways, but he denied all of the other charges. His defence was managed by solicitor David Payne and pursued in court by John Milmo QC, but they were fighting a losing battle with the wealth of evidence that the prosecution presented against Sam's. Prosecuting counsel Richard Wakeley QC led a firm attack that at times during the four-week trial left Sam shaken and in tears. Stephanie herself gave evidence about her ordeal, and the jury were played tape recordings of the many interviews with Sam's where he claimed his mystery accomplice was the one responsible for Julie's murder. They also heard powerful testimony from Lynn Dart and were presented with a wealth of circumstantial and forensic evidence proving Sam's complicity, including no less than 21 solid links between the kidnapper of Stephanie Slater and the killer of Julie Dart. They were also presented with fibres that tied Sam's workshop to rope used to bind Julie's body, the carpet fibres and dog hairs that were found on the sheet that her body was wrapped in that matched Sam's dog, and the evidence retrieved from Sam's word processor. It all left a striking impression on the jury, and at 11.42 on the morning of the 8th of July 1993, they retired to consider their verdict. Three and a half hours later, they returned with unanimous guilty verdict on all counts of kidnap, blackmail and murder. Sam stood impassive as Mr Justice Judge passed sentence upon him, saying, You are an extremely dangerous and evil man. The jury has convicted you of murder and murder in cold blood. You deliberately strangled her to death when your kidnapping went wrong because she saw more than she should. You tried to turn her death to your advantage. The letters you wrote make chilling reading. No qualms, no remorse. You were heartless at the grief that you had caused. It was misplaced pride and callous arrogance. I have not the slightest doubt that Stephanie Slater was in mortal danger for the first two or three days of her captivity. If it seemed necessary to you, she, like Julie Dart, would have been murdered in cold blood. Her survival was entirely due to her remarkable moral courage, and the ordeal you inflicted upon her is something the rest of us can only imagine. The reality must have been far worse. You are, for an indefinite future, a menace to the community. There is an urgent necessity to protect the public from harm by you. Sam's was then issued four life sentences, one for each count of kidnapping, one for Julie's murder, and one for Stephanie's unlawful imprisonment. He was also sentenced to ten years imprisonment for each count of demanding money with menaces. He said nothing, and was escorted down to the cells by five prison officers before being taken back to Winston Green Prison in Birmingham, where he'd been held on remand, and then he was then transferred to Full Sutton Prison in York. Four days into his life sentence, he requested the presence of West Yorkshire Police, and was to hold an interview lasting an hour with Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor and Detective Inspector Paul Maxwell, where Sams confessed in full for the first time to the abduction and murder of Julianne Dart. Sams claimed he'd decided to set the record straight because he claimed he'd read an account of Julie's mother having a headstone for her, but not being able to put a date on it, and this had upset him. He then went on record to say that the accomplice was fictional and that he had always worked alone. Sams had always intended to kill Julie and that he had never placed her in a box, which rang true because the severely claustrophobic Julie 
would have fought tooth and nail before ever going into one. Sam's claimed that on Wednesday the 10th of July, he'd hit her on the head from behind with a hammer four times and then strangled her with a length of rope before dumping the body. Stephanie, he claimed, was always going to be allowed home, a claim that West Yorkshire police didn't believe in the slightest. It was more likely that Stephanie's humanising of herself to a kidnapper that saved her life. Prison had obviously broken Sam's and he was beaten. The game was well and truly up. Following his incarceration, Stephanie Slater never did go back to her job as an estate agent and instead moved away to start a new life on the Isle of Wight. Understandably, such an experience did leave some scars and in 1995 Stephanie published a book entitled Beyond Fear, My Will to Survive. It was in this book that Stephanie revealed for the first time that Sams had raped her on the first night of her imprisonment. She had denied any sexual assault or activity when asked about it immediately after she was released. She claimed to spare her mother who had a heart condition from unnecessary further anguish. When this was put to him following the revelation, Sam said that he had never raped Stephanie, asserting, I cannot allow this to go unchallenged. He made the unsubstantiated claim that they had had a consensual sexual encounter and even attempted to sue Stephanie for libel but lost the case. No charges of rape were ever brought against Sam's following this revelation, there being deemed not enough evidence to do so. Stephanie worked for many years with the police, advising them how to deal with kidnap survivors, as well as working with the survivors themselves. Sadly, she passed away from cancer on the 31st of August 2017, aged just 50 years old. Her friends and family claimed that she'd never been able to get over fully the ordeal that Sams had put her through. Michael Sams remains in prison himself to this day. At 76 years old, he is now one of the oldest serving prisoners in the UK and is unlikely ever to be released. He's made the headlines numerous times in the 25 years since his incarceration, most notably in 1997, for taking hostage and attacking a female prison officer, Julie Flack, with a steel spike that he had secreted in his cell. Sam's received an extra eight years imprisonment on top of his life sentence for this attack. He has also tried several times to sue the prison system, for various reasons including in protest against not being allowed to sell paintings that he'd created in his cell, because his bed was too hard, and also that unnecessary time in solitary confinement had led to a loss of earnings for him. I bet your heart bleeds as much as mine is now hearing that, doesn't it? Sam's was successful in obtaining £4,000 in damages when the prison service lost his artificial leg in transit when moving in between prisons, an award which caused public outrage. It's not clear as to whether he ever got it back or not, but... You'd think an artificial leg was hard to misplace really, wouldn't you? And why did he not have it on? Sam's made the news again in April 2007 when in a leaked letter written by Sam's to a newspaper for prisoners called Inside Time, he claimed that OAPs in prison are far better off than those in the community. Which very sadly is probably very true today. And what a disgrace that is. He's also petitioned many times trying to get his prisoner classification downgraded to low risk 
but this has been refused each time, with very, very valid reasons, clearly. Since his incarceration, Sams has been tentatively linked to other crimes, including the attempted abduction of another sex worker in Leeds just a few weeks before Julie was abducted and murdered, a crime that the victim was to give evidence at his murder trial about, although no charges were ever brought against him for it. He is also suspected of a couple of aborted kidnap attempts, again involving estate agents, in the years before Stephanie's kidnap, and perhaps most celebrated of all, he's been linked with the disappearance of estate agent Susie Lamplew in London in July 1986. Crime author Christopher Berry D published a detailed account of Sams's life and crimes in 1995 in a book entitled Unmasking Mr. Kipper, Who Really Killed Susie Lamplew, a book that's been essential in research in creating this and the previous two episodes. Now I'm not commenting on any way in the claim that Sams is responsible for the crime here. Susie's disappearance is a celebrated case in the annals of British crime and you never know, maybe a name that features considerably in a future episode of the show. But the strongest hint I can possibly give there? I do recommend the book to read. It's a detailed study of Sam's life and crimes, and one that shows a commendable degree of research by the author. Links to this book and other texts that I used to create the episodes, or concerning the Sam's case, can be found in the show notes this week. I have no doubt that Michael Sams is one of the most evil, ruthless and devious people in British criminal history, certainly one of the most audacious and scheming. As I did outline in the previous episode, the sheer scale and depth of his plans and the determination he carried them out with must be applauded, yet for all of this, Sams can and should never be seen in the dashing criminal way that he wants to be. He's simply a greedy, cowardly murderer driven by gain, a blackmailer and alleged rapist and one who still continues to be a threat. Hello? Have you got the money? Who's this, please? Never mind. Have you got the money? For tomorrow? For tomorrow? Yeah. Have you got it? Threat in prison now, as his 1997 attack shows. Yes, on paper his plans were extremely thorough and well thought out and prepared. He was, and undoubtedly is, a smart and methodical man. Yet he ultimately left a careless trail of evidence that was to tie all of the cases together and convict him. And what do I think was his biggest blunder? He forgot to use his clothes peg to disguise his voice, giving his real accent and tone on one of the numerous recordings that police were to obtain. A simple but very costly oversight, because thanks to this and Crime Watch, he was identified within two hours of his voice going public. When arrested... He couldn't think on his feet after all and win this battle of wits with police. He instead fell apart and confessed to the kidnapping within an hour. As the pressure grew and the evidence piled up, Sams could only use the increasingly tall story that he had an accomplice that he could conveniently lay the murder and blackmail at the feet of. Crimes he'd committed himself but he didn't want to be remembered for because he viewed them as failures. And that wasn't how Sams wanted to be seen. This was the only reason he sought to distance himself from Julie's murder and the failed British Rail blackmail plot was because these he deemed failures. They didn't fit in with his view of being a daring master criminal. It is important to stress that there is in no way any remorse from Sam's for anyone except himself. But there is nothing to pity about this man, a simple one-legged failed businessman and train spotter that greed got the better of 
and dreamed to take the life of a young girl in a brutal and horrific manner and ruin the life of another one, all for a ransom that he was never to spend. Sam's is unquestionably exactly where he deserves to be to this day and to the day he dies for his monstrous crimes. What do you think then, folks? Why did Michael Sams end up going down this route? Did his illness in 1974 lead to some sort of permanent change in his psyche? Or was he just born with an evil and ruthless streak in him and greed took over one day? I hope that you've found this and the entire trilogy of episodes devoted to the one-legged train spotter both interesting and informative. It's a case that's long held my interest and I remember back when the nation was gripped for a few weeks with a hunt for him. As you can appreciate, I hope, it's a case that completely warranted a three-part episode, and I hope that I've done it justice here. If I have, Julie and Stephanie and their families won't be forgotten, and nor will any of the countless others, his own family included, that Michael Sam selfishly brought misery into the life of. I've resisted placing up the usual discussion thread for the previous two episodes, as I wanted to wait until all three had been aired, but there will be one up now in the Facebook group, and I'm counting on hearing your thoughts about the One-Legged Trainspotter trilogy. Please feel free to comment and give your opinion. I'm always interested in what you guys have to say, or get in touch through the usual social media outlets also. I'll be back next Thursday with another case to recount, and I hope that you can join me then. Or if you're a newbie to the show, then there is a back catalogue of episodes leading up to here, and an extra four available now on Patreon, all for the price of less than a pint of lager each month. Thanks so much for joining me all. I'm Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and I shall catch you guys real soon. Take care, be safe all, and goodbye for now.